Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high-regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tech on Reg. Today, we are going to be once again discussing my favorite regulator and yours, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And they've done, they've done a few things in the past few weeks that are uh, worth noting. So to talk about some of the recent CFPB activity with me today is Joanne Needleman, leader of Clark Hill's Consumer Financial Services Regulatory and Compliance Practice, and also host of her own podcast, Credit Ecosystem to Go. Welcome to Tech on Reg, Joanne. Thank you so much for having me, Dara. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. So before we get into, uh, again, what our favorite regulator has been up to over the past few weeks, uh, I'd like to quickly thank our sponsor for today's episode, InvestNet Yodli. If you haven't had a chance to check out InvestNet's uh, recently launched uh, Yodli Launchpad online, you should definitely do that. Lots of interesting content, uh, and they've recently launched their C-Series suite about COVID-19's impact on work. If you haven't taken a look, check that out. They're doing really, really great and productive things for the industry over at InvestNet Yodli. Okay, Joanne, we ready? We're ready. All right. So for those of you who don't know, um, and anyone who's been listening to the podcast already knows this about me, is that I do a lot of work in the non-bank consumer financial services space. That includes working with a lot of non-bank financial services companies, very focused in the debt buying and debt collection space. Joanne uh, has been blazing trails in that space far before I entered. Um, And Joanne, uh, I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about not only your practice and what you do, but the interesting role that you had the opportunity to serve on uh, at the CFPB as part of their advisory group. Well, thank you, Tara. I appreciate those those comments and those compliments. So I've been at Clark Hill, which is a law firm for the past five years. Uh, I've been practicing law for more than 25 years. Um, But when I came over to Clark Hill, we have an established banking and financial services group, but it was mostly uh, focused on the commercial side and commercial lending and bankruptcy and secured lending. So I came over and brought the consumer finance perspective to our group, and it's been a great journey and um, it's it's been a good landing spot for me um, I've been in the consumer they, did, they didn't know what they'd re- they didn't know what they, they were missing, they, right yeah, I think if you ask them, <laughs> they would say something completely different but no it's been it's been a really good run uh, I had never been in big law before I've always had my own firms uh, small firms like yours Dara and when I made the move everybody said you're crazy to go to big law well maybe I was but I also came over uh, when I came to the firm I was I would say I was an adult I have been practicing for a very, very long time. I will say, as young associates, I can understand the struggles of big firm law. It is a very complicated, convoluted journey. And uh, kudos to all those young associates who, who burn those the midnight oil and, and do what they have to do to be successful in big law firms because they Ugh, work. Been there, been there, right. done that, have all the t-shirts, and yeah. I'm so happy to, to be done. I, I get that. Right now. Coming in with an established practice and have worked Super uh, how I work, it, it made it very, very seamless. But 
like you, Dara, I represent a lot of non-bank financial services entities. I've been in the debt collection space for most of my career, getting started mostly with the National Creditors Bar Association, uh, representing collection attorneys. I was a collection attorney myself uh, many, many years ago, transitioned that to representing my clients, uh, both from their collection matters, their, their contracts. And then, you know, back in the mid-2000s, as you know, all of a sudden, all of our clients were getting sued <laughs> and were getting counterclaims and we started defending them. And there was this- Like all the time. All the time. All and the time. This, right. And there was this FDCPA, which I heard about in the 90s and never paid much attention to it. And then having to start defend them with Fair Debt Collection Practices, uh, claims and Fair Credit Reporting Act claims. So that kind of morphed. And then as I got more involved in the National Creditors Bar Association, started looking at the regulatory impact. And at that time in the late 2000s, the FTC, there was no CFPB then, the FTC was really starting to look into debt collection. I remember going to all these forums for the FTC and I spoke at one, you know, and they, they it was called, they, they put a report out called the challenges of change and how to change the debt collection system because they were getting all these complaints. And that's really, start, that was really the benchmark of what started, you know, enforcement and consumer protection in the debt collection space. And then ultimately the CFPB came. I was going to say, fast forward, economy implodes, Dodd-Frank is passed and, right. and the CFPB, here we are. Actually, it's been 10 years since Dodd-Frank. And so happy anniversary. To happy that. anniversary. <laughs> what, an, what anniversary is 10? It's t- title 10. 10 <laughs> oh, oh, you mean like a tinfoil or yeah, some, something like that. Something along those lines. So um, as part of my work through the National Creditors Bar Association, I became its president in 2013. And um, at that time, you know, the CFPB was really starting to ramp up uh, the larger market participant rule where they said they were going to supervise and enforce and look at the larger players first. So I had a lot of engagement with the Bureau. And you will recall as part of Dodd-Frank, the Bureau was given authority to have various advisory boards. And one of them was the Consumer Advisory Board. And, you know, for, 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 for giggles and you know what else, uh, I applied as president of NCBA and for whatever reason, they, they, they liked my application. So I sat on the board and it was a really interesting experience. And I got to serve uh, with Richard Cordray and got to know him very well and really got to know- Now that board doesn't exist anymore, right? It does actually. And they just announced new, uh, there, was a, there was an interim period when Mick Mulvaney was uh, director, you know, he kind of imploded everything, including the name of the agency. Um, he got rid of the board. He got pissed at them really one day because they were, he kept canceling meetings and he just got pissed and said, you're all going away. But when Kathleen Craninger came in, you know, she, it's mandated by statute. And so she brought the boards back. Now, are they in the same form when I was there? Not really. I mean, when I was there, we met three times a year, twice in Washington and once on the road in great places like Omaha, Nebraska, and Little Rock, Arkansas. Not to take away from any of those places, but there's not a lot of direct flights to either of those places. (laughs) You're on Southwest a lot. But, you know, there was public meetings, there was private meetings. It was extremely active, and Director Cordray was very much engaged in those boards. But I really got to meet, there were very few industry people, mostly consumer advocates. And, you know, Um, And I am sure maybe you you feel the same way. How often do you get to talk to a consumer advocate? Not not a lot. Maybe aside from in an adversarial situation in a lawsuit or in an enforcement or supervision or something along those lines. But to sit and have dinner 
with a consumer advocate and drink wine when I was drinking wine at the time with a consumer advocate. You know what? They're moms, they're dads, they've got kids, they got the same issues we do. We just come, we, our views about certain things are coming from different directions. And it was really, I really, that was the most benefit that I got out of it. I really became friendly with a lot of them. They're all very nice people. They believe what they believe. They're political too. They've got their groups and organizations and sure. There are groups and organizations say what they need to say, but if you get them, you know, one on one and talk with them, believe it or not, you don't have a lot. The differences are very minimal. At the end of the day, I think industry, as much as consumer advocates, want to protect consumers. We just have different ways of going about it. So it was an interesting, uh, it was great perspective. It was a wonderful experience. I thank the Bureau for allowing me to do that. And, um, you know, it certainly has helped my practice along the way and gain, gaining better perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's got to be really an advantage that a lot of us in private practice don't have. And being able to sort of share that insight with uh, your clients has to impact the advice and, you know, the guidance that you Mm -hmm. give them. Um, And I, you know, stuff like that, I think is completely invaluable. You know, so outside of like, bar associations and, you know, ABA and those other, you know, really rare opportunities where you get to collaborate with, you know, consumer advocacy groups uh, who we are all normally adverse to. I sort of cherish those opportunities and try to derive as much value from them as I can. And it sounds like you had the benefit of doing exactly the same thing. So you mentioned uh, large market participants and the very special rules that apply to them. Uh, So, and you're right, right at the beginning when CFPB gained supervisory authority and established a large market participant rule, there was a pretty large market participant in the debt buying and debt collection industry that the CFPB very much focused their attention on. Um, And that attention ultimately culminated in a consent decree in 2015. For those of you who don't know who I'm talking about, Uh, We're talking about Encore Capital Group, Midland Funding, Midland Credit Management, and Asset Acceptance Capital Corp, which really fall under the all under the Encore Capital Group uh, umbrella. It's a publicly traded company, so if you're desperately interested in understanding what that corporate structure looks like, uh, there are some publicly available filings where you can read hundreds and hundreds of pages about that, so I'm not going to bore you with that right now. But the most important thing to know for the purposes of our discussion here today is that the companies were doing some things that the Bureau really didn't like and ultimately culminated in a consent order judgment and fines uh, that were paid back in 2015, which obligated those organizations to do certain things over a period of time. And that meant that the CFPB was going to be keeping an eye on them Mm -hmm. during that period of time to make sure that they were compliant with their order. Now, fast forward, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, sort of the entire, you know, consumer uh, credit market ecosystem, debt buying, debt collection has sort of been upended by a global pandemic. Uh, States are issuing rules all over a place. And on September 8th of this year, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau filed suit in federal district court in the Southern District of California against those same signatories to the 2015 consent decree, Encore Capital Group and its subsidiaries, Midland Funding, Midland Credit, and Asset Acceptance Capital Corp. They are together comprised the largest debt collector and debt buyer in the United States. According to the CFPB's uh, news release, they have annual revenue exceeding a billion dollars and an annual net income exceeding 75 million. 
Uh, they are currently subject to that 2015 consent decree, and the Bureau, in its filing, said that they uh, have, I mean, to put it mildly, not been compliant with a few other fun facts sprinkled in. So, Joanne, um, can you give us sort of a quick overview of what the CFPB said? Sure. Um, and I think it's important that you mentioned when they did the consent order and they said they didn't like, they did some things that they didn't like. And back in 2015, you, we all have to remember in the debt collection space, all we have is the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, right. which is a pretty awful statute, not because we represent debt collectors. It's that it is the most poorly, it's not, mo, I mean, for, you look at it's it. It's very it's so poorly cool. written. <laughs> poorly drafted. It's from 1977. It, it's just, it's, it's terrible. It does not achieve its intent, which is to protect consumers. It doesn't do that at all. And it's just, it's proscriptive. It doesn't tell you what you should do. It tells you what you can't do in extraordinarily nebulous terms. Come 2015, so when the Bureau started looking at debt collection, examining larger market participants, you know, what were they looking for? You know, did you make a misrepresentation? Were you unfair? I don't know what any of that means, okay? I mean, what what is unfair to, some, to, to, to one person may be unfair to another. But in the consent- And what's unfair in one circuit does not necessarily uh, exactly. mean it's unfair in another. Exactly. So, you know, the, the key thing, the two key things that came out of the Encore consent order was really had to do with collection litigation and that- Encore, collectively, was not providing its attorneys with original account-level documentation in order for the attorneys to review to substantiate, you know, the claims that Encore was saying that we owed money. Well, that's fine. But there's no, the FDCPA doesn't talk about that at all. Nothing. And then the other thing was statute of limitations. Um, now, Asset had already lived through that nightmare with the FTC, but they felt that they were collecting on statute of limit, you know, out of stat debt and not disclosing to consumers that it was out of stat. Well, again, the FDCPA doesn't talk, FDCPA doesn't talk about statute of limitations at all. Nothing. It's also probably worth mentioning that back in 2015, when the consent decree was ordered and the CFPB got really sort of uh, agitated about the lack of original account level documentation, Industry practice at the time, those weren't documents that were readily available or provided right. by That's the right. banks to the industry. So right. it's not as though there was some conscious choice made right. to not provide these documents. If, if the banks that you bought the debt from aren't giving it to you, what exactly, what exactly was a debt buyer to do. to do? Well, and not only, it's not that, and it was not that they were consciously not giving them to them. You have to remember that under federal law, banks weren't required to keep it. They didn't have to have those, you know, how long are you supposed to keep documents? I mean, that is, to me, that was part of the problem with Dodd-Frank as a whole. We want to get into, quote, credit ecosystem. Dodd-Frank just looked at one aspect of the financial services industry. There's all these other aspects that need to be incorporated with it. Document retention was one of them, completely ignored, but another podcast for another day. Indeed. So, you know, that was when those... Those consent orders came out. It was very big for the industry. And, and, and also to your point, in 2015 even, there was, first of all, who has documents? I mean, nobody, there's no warehouse. There's no mysterious warehouse in the middle of Nevada near the UFO site that's housing all these documents. As you, Dara, you're a technology person. Everything is about bits and data. 
It's That's about, right. you know, when I go to Lowe's and buy my mulch, I give them a card and, you know, all my bits and data are going through the Lowe's system. And then when I need to find out if, you know, on my credit card, if I paid for Lowe's, I go into the website and all that data is accumulated into a format that I can read. So there's no mysterious documents anywhere. It's how do you organize your data? All right. CFPB didn't like that. And it was a big issue for the industry. And I think for the most part, even in 2015, everybody was complying with that in some respect. But what's interesting is there really was no definition of what original account level documentation was. And to this day, there's not. So now- No, because if, 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 you're, if you're searching and hunting for wet signatures on cardholder applications- That was, fi- that was applied for online, there is no signature. So, Correct. right. So, you know, fast forward now to, to last week and, you know, the Bureau obviously must have had some sort of examination or something along the line and, and felt that they were not complying. So I think it's interesting. My, my first question is, and as, as you mentioned in the intro, they were still subject to the consent order. So file a motion for contempt. Why they had to file a whole, you know, why they had to pile on and file a whole new uh, complaint, I don't know. Now, that being said, the complaint does talk about a different issue that they have uncovered, and that was this international transaction fees that they were either improperly charging or overcharging consumers. But I got to think it had to have been U.S. consumers with foreign, who, who a U.S. consumer that was maybe living in a foreign country, but yet they were collecting it in the United States or vice versa. Yeah, I mean, to be really specific, um, what the CFPB said Encore did incorrectly with regards to international transaction fees is that Sometime in mid-2016, they began using a payment processor based in a foreign country to process debit and credit card payments. Okay, okay. And then because of that, there was a possibility, not a certainty, and these are are the words directly out of the complaint, there was Mm -hmm. a possibility that certain consumers' banks, not all consumers' banks, because every bank does it differently. Right. Certain consumers' banks may charge an international transaction fee for those payments. And shame, shame, Encore, you did not tell consumers that they might, that their bank might charge them an international transaction fee for processing said payment. Right. And it was a whopping one, two... It's a whopping six sentences. Six or seven sentences in the entire 18-page complaint. So, I mean, that is a pretty nebulous, speculative allegation. There hasn't, you know, the complaint hasn't identified any consumers. There's a, they use the words might and may, which doesn't mean did. I mean, we know that, you know, there's a potential that there was an order and they did not comply with it. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But those are pretty specific facts. But this section of the complaint is just, you know, I think is a, is a Hail Mary at best. I think it's a Hail Mary. I I couldn't agree with you more because sort of taken to its logical conclusion, it's like, okay, so if we then try to process a debit card payment um, where you had insufficient funds in your your bank account, am I also supposed to maybe disclose to the consumer like, hey, by the way, if you don't have enough money in your bank account to process this debit card, your bank might also charge you an overdraft fee. Your bank might do it. We won't, but like your bank might. Right, right. So it's, it's sort of taken to... A non like a nonsensical conclusion because if you had to do this and qualify what a consumer's bank may or may not do, where does that end? 
Right, right. So I agree. So it's it, it was, it really, in my opinion, was a shot across the bow uh, to the debt collection industry. And I'm sure it didn't, it, it didn't throw Encore off guard because they you know, knew, knew this was coming and was having conversations with the CFPB. But I'm sure it threw the industry off guard because this is a pretty massive, I mean, we everybody kind of thought this issue was resolved. And now it's not. And I think that, and, and now all of a sudden, and the, and the irony of is this. So since 2015, we have gone through an ANPR. We have gone through Sabrifa. We've gone through the NPR. And we are at, we're on the eve of debt collection rules. And, um, and throughout- for, for listeners who uh, are less familiar with sort of the alphabet soup, uh, what Joanne's <laughs> referring to is that there was an advance notice of proposed rulemaking, and that was rules and regulations specifically for the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, which had never had rules and regs drafted for it uh, before. Uh, and Sabrifa was the small business, uh, I forget exactly. Regulatory, what Small Business Regulatory Enforcement Fairness Act. So what Joanne said, um, and the whole point of that process, and it's a long one, is so that small business has an opportunity to be heard on what the potential impact of the proposed rules are. And then fingers crossed, what was is supposed to and was supposed to happen is that the Bureau, the rulemaking arm of the Bureau, listens to what small business concerns are, takes that back, and tries to incorporate and resolve some of those concerns when they publish their notice of proposed rulemaking. And that's been published. Uh, Joanne can comment on whether or not uh, the comments from Sabrifa were, you know, taken to heart or not. No. Um, <laughs> Joanne, you guys can't see her right now, but Joanne's totally oh, I'm sorry. No, not really. Sorry. <laughs> no, not really. Um, well, and it's, look, Sabrifa was an important, it's part of the administrative record. Under the Administrative Procedures Act, agencies must consider the cost-benefit analysis in any rule that they do. And part of that cost-benefit analysis is how it will impact small businesses. And if they don't take into consideration, this was one of the reasons that the payday rule went back and forth for so long, because there were so many small payday lenders where it was clear that 80% of their business would go away under the payday rule. So the the any agency who is subject to Sabrifa, and there's only a few, CFPB being one of them, must consider that. So the Sabrifa process is an important process. But I think what's important is, and what we're trying to say is, you know, this has been going on for five to seven years. A lot of years. A lot of years years. of processing and getting these rules. And what's interesting is nowhere in the proposed rule, whether it be through the ANPR, in Sabrifa, uh, in the outline of proposal, and in the NPR itself, that they ever talked about original account level documentation. And so that's- No transaction fees? or international. (laughs) So it's a little frightening to me that here we are after all this time that both industry and advocates have devoted into trying to develop what should be the rules under debt collection, that here comes the CFPB again and saying, you know what? You know, they didn't say that they violated the FDCPA. They clearly have said they have violated the CFPA, which is the Consumer Financial Protection Act, which is UDAP, basically. And oh, no, they, they said they were violating the FDCPA. Oh, they did? Okay. Yeah. All, right. All right. Well, I mean, so the FDCPA, again, doesn't talk about 
original account level documentation. They haven't written any, they can't write any rules that would talk about original account level documentation because it's not counts, in the statute. Counts three and four for anyone uh, okay. doing their research. <laughs> Tara's got her glasses on. So, I mean, it's, it's, you know, to me, I'm like, here we go again. Here we go again. That's my take of this. So, Joanne, you're right. Here we go again. The question that is that I always ask is why? And the why, we're obviously, there's a fair amount of speculation. No one's going to come out and say exactly why all of this has happened. But I have to imagine with this happening in as... In, in the administration um, that we are currently uh, all operating under, is this nothing more than sort of the optics of a political play to demonstrate that the agency who has been criticized over the past several years for not advocating on behalf of consumers enough in advance of the November election to say, look, we're doing stuff. We're doing stuff and we're doing stuff on an industry that you guys hate. So, mm -hmm. hey, voters, we are totally consumer friendly and don't believe what you hear about how we don't care about you. Uh, look, we just we just sued the nation's largest debt buyer. The timing of it seems fascinating to me, particularly, as you said, in conjunction with we're October is supposed to be the month that we're actually getting, you know, a, a final rule on under the FDCPA, the elections in early November. Like, is it just is it just optics? It feels a little bit that way, at least to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think you're not far off, Dara, at all. Um, I, I think that, look, I think Director Kraninger for better or for worse, has very much tried to be middle of the road. She really has. And, you know, you might not like that. You talk to advocates, she's, she, she's a Trump appointee. That's just the words out of the, her mouth, out of their mouth. Um, I think she has tried to play it straight. Um, I also think that as part of, and, and look, she is a career civil servant. She has worked at OMB. She's worked you know, she has never had a job in the private sector, maybe when I think she first got out of law school, but she has been a civil servant through and through and really has probably better than, than most people, a real understanding of how government works um, from, from an infrastructure, maybe not from a political structure. I think that part of her job too, as a director of an agency, you need to support your enforcement people. And you know, there's been such criticism that, that, that you know, she, she is, she's abandoning consumers. Well, Dara, you're in this industry. They haven't abandoned enforcement. I got plenty of enforcement actions that I'm dealing with. There's plenty no, of- No, I mean, if you, if you honestly, if you go to the CFPB's online newsroom right now and you sort of, not everything gets the same sort of headline as the Encore complaint did. But right. if you go in and you look, there is consent decree, consent decree, consent decree. You know, even through the, through the pandemic, there were decrees entered in March and in April and over the summer. Now, consent decree is a different animal than, you know, the complaint that was just filed off, you know, consent decrees don't appear out of nowhere. <laughs> they, right. you know, and neither they, do complaints and neither do complaints are the result. If you work with the bureau, the bureau doesn't call you up 
on Monday and tell you they're filing a complaint on Tuesday and you haven't talked to them any time before or after. So it doesn't maybe, work that way. Maybe maybe you can shed a little bit of light on this for me because I'm always curious. I, I've not worked for government. I've not had uh, the responsibility to bring an enforcement action, you know, the way the signatories to this complaint did. So this is a question and not a judgment. Mm-hmm. But you have a company that's been under consent decree for five years. I imagine it's not a process where they're just, you know, ignored for two, three years, and then they come back and check in. Um, So for all of this time, the hundreds and hundreds of complaints, debt collection complaints that have been filed over time that the CFPB references in their complaint and all of, you know, there are some big numbers put in here about you didn't have, you thousands and thousands of consumers weren't provided account level data. That's not 2020 news, right? right. Like right. If, right. You're, if you're monitoring this over time, like you should have known that was happening in 2016 and in 2017 right. and in 2018. So right. I'm sort of curious, like either they were working cooperatively for a period of time up until then, and there was some precipitating event that just said, forget it, we've had enough, or it's a little bit of a political play. I, I, I can't... It's part it, of both. I, I do think it's part of both. And I, 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 you're not wrong to, to, to say, is there optics to this? You're, you're not wrong. Of, of course there is. And whenever you're dealing with a governmental agency be, being state or federal, of course there's going to be politics and optics to it. You know, I do... I will say this. Enforcement did come to somewhat of a grinding halt in the Mulvaney tenure, which was about a year. Uh, I mean, things just stopped. Crickets. Nothing, nothing. But since Kroninger has been there, she has slowly gotten the engine running. I think there's a couple of things at play. First of all, um, I don't know, the consent order for Encore provided that there would be ongoing monitoring. So to your point, you know, they, they were talking to them yearly, quarterly, whatever the case may be. I don't have the original order in front of me. So they kind of knew this that was happening. There could have been ongoing discussions. We found deficiencies, fix them. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Who knows? I think another thing that also has come into play is CELA. So I think that there was a, there was a, you know, Kraninger made the decision that this, that the issue of constitutionality had to be resolved. I don't necessarily know if she likes the resolution, but it had to be resolved. And I think that and has that, also... And, and again, we we did an episode about this, but when Joanne says CELA, she means the Supreme Court decision and yes. CELA law um, that uh, made some uh, conclusions about the constitutional or frankly unconstitutional structure of the agency. So... Right. Sorry to interrupt. No, 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 no. That's fine. And so I think that has opened up the floodgates. And I think, again, last but not least, I think your point is valid. So what CELA did basically is impact Director Kraninger's job security. Because if, you know, if there is a change of administration, I don't care what she's doing, 
there's going to be replacement at the CFPB. I just think there's just too much political pressure. I think that Biden has, uh, you know, in, encouraged the progressive left to come into his party because he wants to have a big tent, and that's fine. And that wing of the party is not going to stand for, as you say, a continued Trump appointee to be in the most, one of the most powerful agencies in Washington, being the CFPB. So I think, in some ways, to your point, yeah, she's trying to maybe secure, her, you know, making an effort to secure her job. Uh, her um, appearances before Congress were as equally contentious as Cordray's experiences before Congress. You know, the, the opposing party just ripped her to shreds, including the chair of the, of the House Financial Services Committee. And so I think there is an effort to say, yeah, I'm doing, you know, we are the Bureau and I'm doing my job and this is what I'm doing. Um, back in July, the Bureau had a, as, as part of actually their advisory board meetings, she did a PowerPoint with the, at that, I don't know who was the head of enforcement at that time. And she kind of, you know, called out to industry and saying, okay, seal is done. We're in COVID. We've got the CARES Act. We're going to be, we're looking. We're going to do priority assessments and we're going to be looking at you all. So um, you might have thought that you got to pass for a while, but we're back. That's what basically she said. So maybe this is part of that new initiative. Uh, that she was talking about. Well, it'll definitely be interesting to see how this particular litigation uh, plays out. Uh, I know, of course, you and I are going to be watching it very carefully for a lot of reasons, but you mentioned a change in administration. um, And I think that certainly, uh, certainly possible November is right around the corner. And I'd like to spend a few moments uh, talking to you about really what you think the full impact of an administration change will be on the CFPB. And, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about enforcement. So I'm much more interested in your thoughts on how it will impact the agency's other initiatives, Mm -hmm. rulemaking, and then most important to my listeners, the Office of Innovation and what that's going to mean for sort of the I think at least in part some of the progress that the Office of Innovation has made over the past uh, few years. I I agree with everything that you're saying. Um, You know, let's go back to Dodd-Frank, the 10-year-old Dodd-Frank law. It developed an agency which gave tremendous amount of power, now subject to presidential oversight, but nonetheless, the key to the asylum is given to the director. And they, the director can do whatever the director wants. There's nothing in uh, Dodd Frank that says you have to have certain departments. Doesn't say it doesn't say how you run those departments. Nothing. It just says that you, you know, it gives them authority to supervise and enforce. And you're given a blank slate. Um, unfortunately, the CFPB is a political agency. Uh, everyone says it's an independent agency. That's fine. It's only independent in the sense that it, it doesn't have the same appointments like a cabinet position and whatnot. Right. And so Congress developed an agency that gives tremendous power on decision making of how that agency should run to one person. And I think if there's a change in administration, I think something like an office of innovation, I would hope not, but I think that an office of innovation is it's going at to be risk. it's going to be it's at risk absolutely and i think that's a shame because if you look at some of the other regulators like the sec the fdic the occ everybody is doing some sort of pilot program 
innovation meetings, understanding and recognizing that we have a very archaic financial services regulation framework from the 80s. TILA is what? 80s or whatever. FDCPA is 1977. And we are growing in leaps and bounds uh, in innovation. And it's a square peg trying to fit into a round hole. And we've got to figure out how to integrate them. And I think that these regulators are well positioned to do that. You saw in the Cordray administration, he had the project catalyst. It was a fail. It was, uh, they they didn't, they didn't approve one application. And so um, I I was, I've been very high on the Office of Innovation and what they're doing and some of the things that are, they're coming out and I've worked with them and they're extremely bright people and they are, and, and I will say this, above all anything, the consumer is the center of their focus. Yes, they want to talk about innovation, how to do things better, but at the end of the day, it's about the consumer. So, you know, I think it is at risk. I think student, you know, they- You want to know know what's crazy to me about that Um, is that you're right. The consumer is the focus of the office of innovation because innovation isn't just about like automation and digitizing business processes. Innovation, in my view, at its core for every financial services and non-bank financial services company I've worked with, the reason to innovate and the reason to, you know, optimize is about consumer choice. Absolutely. You know, in their consumer view. preference. Consumer and preference, consumer. consumer choice, communicating with consumers the way they want to be communicated with, opti-channel options and making things easier for them and providing them more choice in credit product or whatever it may be. So you're not the first person who's expressed, you know, concerns about what the future of that office is going to look like or what the future of those projects are going to look like. And for the life of me, I can't wrap my head around why that would be. You will recall when the Bureau came out with their policy initiatives for the no action and the the compliance assistance sandbox and all that stuff. There was incredible resistance, especially yeah. from, from blue state AGs about this. And this is just going to trample consumer protection. They were opposed to it. Now, ironically, in California, as you know, they just, you know, the, the legislature just approved a budget for a mini CFPB run by our friend Manny Alvarez. And good for Manny. I think he will be fantastic in that position. But the AG of California was one of those blue state AGs that absolutely opposed the Office of Innovation. And the new mini CFPB is the Office of Consumer Finance and Innovation or Consumer Financial Protection and Innovation. So how many, and I think it's Barreca, Xavier Barreca is the the California AG, how they're going to, you know- Like reconcile all of that. Reconcile that is going to be very interesting, but- you know, advocates are very afraid of innovation. And again, that's why getting back to, you know, what we talked about at the beginning, having good engagement with advocates, you know, I think that they're scared of innovation for reasons that they believe. And maybe some of them are very founded, but I think there needs to be better dialogue amongst advocates and industry to understand, to your point, that the only reason we do innovation is for the benefit of the consumer. And how we can do that. So it's it. I, I, you I don't. Know. I don't know if it's the only reason, but it's definitely like a massive driving force. And I also think sort of the the resistance and fear 
surrounding, you know, innovation efforts sort of forgets about sort of like the changing and aging like population uh, of, of, of the country. And if you really look at, you know, what the United States is about to encounter, one of the largest wealth transfers to a generation in its history, um, and those consumers our younger generation of consumers who are about to inherit this wealth transfer don't do business like their grandparents. They don't do, they don't communicate like them. They don't communicate like me or you. And if we fail to do that, everybody suffers. Business suffers, the banks suffer, the economy will ultimately suffer in the long run. Um, And certainly those, those consumers will be given far fewer choices. So I just sort of, I just sort of think it's kind of bananas. That's, that's a technical term, bananas. <laughs> like, I don't remember that studying for the bar to find bananas. <laughs> um, that was just, that was just here in Illinois. <laughs> Funny. No, it's going to be interesting. And I hope that, well, and it doesn't help that, um, so Paul Watkins just left as the director. They're still looking for a director. Um, they have some wonderful senior counsel in that uh, division, um, so we will see, I, you know, I, I, another thing I think that the director Craninger did, I think in some ways even better than Cordray was do a lot of consumer education. Um, there is a whole department in there and Gail Hillebrand's been, I think she's still in there and still running it. The CFPB needs to be about consumer education because you can't have consumer choice without consumer education. And oh, by the way, uh, innovation with regards to financial wellness and consumer education is and ought to be a massive part of the Office of Innovation. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, look, it is unfortunately, uh, as I said, it's a political agency. It makes no sense that every time there's a new director, there has to be this big seismic shift in policy, you don't see that at the FTC. I mean, you know, is it uh, Joe Simons who's been running the FTC? He just resigned or he just stepped down, you know, for the for the past three or four years. He's a Republican. Does anybody know that? Does anybody care? FTC is still humming along, doing all their yeah. data privacy stuff. You know, the SEC gets change of directors. Now, the OCC seems to be a little bit of a football these days, but you just cannot, it is not healthy, especially for financial, for the financial services industry to have these seismic shifts in policy every time there's a new director. There has to be a consistent flow of how the industry is going to be run. And I don't think that's been achieved by the CFPB. Uh, well, Joanne, it getting your perspective on these issues has been terrific. Thank you so much for, for joining me. Um, you have to promise me that after the election and whatever uh, disputes amongst the parties result after the election, I'm just trying to be a realist. I think it's important to set all of our expectations. Right. Um, definitely would love to have you back so we can analyze what the what the, up the may, what the future may hold. Oh, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be crazy, and I think it's going to be. I feel like no matter what happens, it's going to be it, it's going to be a really wild ride. Um, but I feel very fortunate to be able to discuss those issues with incredibly smart people like you. And thanks again, and for everyone listening, I uh, hope you enjoyed our discussion about the country's uh, favorite consumer regulator. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much, Darren. Take care.